On the show today, I'm joined by the incredible Dermot Crowley. We talk all things Star Wars, the death of Stalin, and of course, Luther, as well as his incredible theatrical projects. It's going to be a great show, so don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to the brand new episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and I couldn't be more excited to have you with me today as I chat to Dermot Crowley. I talked to Dermot all about his work on Luther and the potential of an upcoming film, as well as his work on Star Wars, and in the theatre, and we discussed National Theatre Live and how that's helping bring theatre to a whole range of new audiences. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Dermot. Here it is. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Now, what inspired you to pursue a career in the performance industry? (laughs) Um, It started when I was um, a very, very small boy indeed, and um, I got a part in the nativity play in my nursery school as the second shepherd, Um, and between uh, starting to rehearse it and when it finally went on around Christmas in my nursery school, I got the measles and couldn't uh, perform and was replaced by another boy. And when my mom took me to see it, I remember these feelings of rage as I looked at it, thinking that I should be up there playing the second shepherd and not this awful guy <laughs> and uh and i think that's sort of where the spark uh happened that there was something magical about wanting to be on stage um and i i was an only child as well and so how much of it was attention seeking and and how much of it was you know an actual desire at that stage uh, i'm not quite sure but that's what i can trace it back to and from that moment um you know, I did uh, a lot of school plays and and when I went to university and uh, all of that, and that's where the desire started. So it was very, very young because it's a very long time ago. <laughs> and once you realized that it was something you could pursue professionally, what training and uh, work did you undertake to make it some sort of reality? Well, um when uh, because I, I grew up in Ireland in, in um, the beautiful city of Cork and at that time there were no drama schools in Ireland so uh, I joined a local uh, amateur theatre company called the Everyman uh, Theatre in Cork which was run by uh, my English school uh, teacher in high school called John O'Shea and he sort of had me in school plays and saw that you know I might possibly have some talent so he started to cast me in uh, plays in the grown-up theatre as it were in in Everyman and then I went to university in Cork and carried on doing that there and when I finished in university I, I became a teacher for three weeks and uh, realized at the end of three weeks that uh, this wasn't for me and I just had to become an actor. So I auditioned for um, RTE, which is the Irish Broadcasting uh, Company, for their radio repertory company, um, where people read short stories and did plays on radio. And I was offered a two-year contract in Dublin, and that's how I sort of became a professional actor. I was suddenly being paid for it. And... Radio Erin, as it was at the time, the radio drama company, uh, which has left me with an enormous love of radio all my life, that was my drama school. 
because you were able to play parts that you couldn't play on film or television because you didn't look right, because it all depended on the voice. And also I was surrounded by some really superb actors uh, who were older than I was, and by watching and listening and learning, um, you know, that's, that was my drama school. And it was the best drama school ever. I mean, a, a, a lot of actors who have sort of made, uh, some made fine careers, uh, never went to drama school. Um, Ian McKellen being one example. Um, um, and uh, I know of several more. But now uh, kids have to go and do formal training, I guess, because otherwise it's so competitive, it's, it's too difficult for them to, to break into it unless they're incredibly lucky. Mm. So from that, who would you say that you learnt the most from? Well, I, I learnt an enormous amount from those actors um, back in Dublin at that time. Um, and I, I stayed as a radio actor for four years and then I eventually sort of realised that if I wanted to spread my wings, as it were, that I would have to leave Ireland. And um, and so I, I went to London and uh, worked in various repertory uh, theatres uh, around the country in Sheffield and in Edinburgh. But I eventually ended up at the National Theatre uh, in London and I spent three and a half years there um, working with amazing actors like Michael Bryant and Robert Stevens and Sir Ralph Richardson uh, and Dorothy Tewton. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, it was such a privilege. I was quite young and I was cast in a variety of plays from um, restoration comedy to Shakespeare. And to be able to stand in the wings and just look at, at the technique these people had um, and then try and, you know, do it myself uh, was, a, was a wonderful experience. So my, my second great training ground was spending three and a half years at the National and then gradually I started doing film and television. But it, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of actors, um, you know, become very famous very quickly when they're young um, but that doesn't apply to the bulk of the profession. And I've always looked upon um, being an actor as, as a vocation, uh, which is, uh, in, in the old-fashioned sense of the word, which is a calling, which is that you, you, you need to do it, you know, that there is nothing else in your life that would make you happy to do but to be an actor. And I would say to any young person, if there is anything else in your life that would make you happy to do as a job, then for God's sake, don't go and do it because it's not an easy life. However, if you are determined to do it and you need to do it, then it can be the greatest life ever. Um, and so... Uh, yeah. Um, what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> we started at uh, who you learned the most from, but that was some very wise advice. Oh, I see. Oh, yes. The other thing I want to say was that, uh, which I will say to all young people out there, it is a marathon and not a sprint. So if you're in the business to become famous very quickly and earn a lot of money, it's not going to happen unless you're incredibly lucky. Um, but if you're in the business to learn your craft and to get better and better and to face challenges both on film and on television uh, and on stage, you know, then this is a business for you. But you have to have the right attitude. Um, there we are. Lecture over. 
<laughs> no, it was it was a wonderful uh, statement, and I I completely agree with you. I'm wondering though, when you're in those moments where you're not getting the work and you're quite struggling, especially for the younger actors, how do you motivate yourself to keep going and keep auditioning when you're getting turned away, you know, 10 times, 20 times a day? It's, it's difficult. Um, it, you know, it can be a heartrending profession. Um, there's a lot of rejection uh, and a lot of failure um, and you've got to be tough as old boots and not take it personally. Um, I would say to anybody that it's really important that you have outside interests. If, if, you, if you define yourself by what you do and so you define yourself as an actor as opposed to a completely rounded human being, then you're in for a lot of pain because you are going to go through rejection after rejection. And it happens to the best of people. Um, I remember hearing an interview on radio um, years ago uh, with Michael Caine. And Michael Caine at the time was a big, big star. He had uh, done the Ipris file and Zulu and Alfie. And he, he was a huge star, uh, particularly here in Britain. And he was nominated for his first Oscar and I think it was for Hannah and her sisters. And the interviewer said, oh, Michael Caine, you are so famous and you have such an illustrious career uh, and you're never out of work. Uh, and, you know, will, you know, were you to win the Oscar next week, uh, would it make any difference to your career? And there was a pause and Michael Caine said, well, it would mean that I would get scripts without other actors' coffee stains on them. And it was a fantastic lesson because what it said was that even Michael Caine is not the first choice for certain roles. And by the time the kind of script gets to him, uh, several people have turned it down. Now, moving on to your one of your early film roles, you were in Return of the Jedi, which was the final of the original Star Wars films. What was it like working on that project? It... It, it was extraordinary in retrospect. Um, I mean, at the time, I was, you know, just a working actor. Um, and uh, a, a working actor who hadn't seen Star Wars, I hasten to add. And uh, so my agent called me up one day and said, um, you know, Richard Markland, uh, who's directing the latest Star Wars film, uh, is meeting people and having auditions and they want to see you for this part of General Madine. And, um, but it kind of didn't mean anything to me because I hadn't seen the previous two. But, uh, so I went along and said hello and I think read, read a bit. And uh, a couple of days later, my agent rang me up and said, they'd like you to do it. And I thought, oh, fine. And it was only something like, I don't know, it was maybe two, three days' work. And uh, so I went along to the studio on the day and sort of got costumed up and, and they insisted on putting a beard on me, uh, which I hated having things stuck in my face, but there we were. And um, and I walked on set uh, uh, with Caroline Blakeston, who plays Mon Mothma, um, who's a wonderful, um, classically trained uh, actress. Uh, and, you know, there was Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and all of that. And this amazing set, which I, I think we shot it in 
1982. And that particular set at that time had cost half a million pounds, uh, according to rumour, and it looked it. I mean, it looked absolutely amazing. Um, That was an astonishing amount of money then. uh, It still is an enormous amount of money. Um, So we did it, and I think we... I think it took like two days to shoot that, and then I was leaving at the end of it. And the um, first assistant director said, you know, what are you doing next week? And um, I said, no, I don't think I'm doing anything. So he said, you know, George would like to shoot some stuff with you, George Lucas. So I said, fine. So I came back the next week, and I did, I think, like another three days um, against a blue screen uh, flying into battle and uh, getting to say, may the force be with you. And I, uh, and I thought, you know, this really is a great life to be getting up every morning and going and making a Star Wars movie. But I didn't think any more of it. That You know, when that was finished, that was it. And um, and life carried on. And, and that same year, funnily enough, I, I, I did a Bond movie. Uh, they were shooting Octopussy. And so I didn't know anything about how big Star Wars was uh, until a friend of mine said um, about eight or nine months later, he said um, that he'd been in Hamleys, which is this big prestigious um, toy store in London, in Regent Street. And he said, "There's um, we didn't call them action figures in those days. He said, there's a doll of you in Hamleys. And I said, What? Uh, what are you talking about? And so he said, yeah, there's this little doll thing. And sure enough, they had started launching all of the action figures for Star Wars. And there was General Madine with my photograph on the on the backing card. And um, and that was a very, very long time ago. But it, it, was, it was then that I began to realize that I was sort of part of something that was much bigger than me and that it wasn't just another movie uh, that one would do and it would be seen and then be more or less forgotten about or occasionally played on television Um, but that it would become a kind of a sort of a worldwide phenomenon as the Star Wars universe has um, and would affect the lives of of so many people uh, in in very moving ways uh, a lot of the time as I've gathered from meeting the fans and, and reading fan mail over the years so uh yeah that was that was return of the jedi so do you find yourself still talking a lot about those essentially two weeks for, from almost you know, 30 years ago i yeah, well i do because um because i suppose because those movies are so well known and if people look at my cv and they see uh, i was in uh, return of the jedi um they obviously want to talk about it, or at least a lot of people do. And it, it, it never annoyed me uh, because, uh, you know, it, it was a sort of an accident of fate that I was in it. But it's something I'm quite proud to have been in because at one stage I, I wasn't too keen to talk about it. And then one fan said to me one day, he said, you know, you're very reluctant to talk about it. And I said, well, I have done other things. And then he said, yes, but he said, you're part of cinema history, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so even if I'm just a tiny footnote in cinema history, I'm, uh, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Well, you have, as I said, done a lot of other TV and film and obviously theatre. 
Do you find theatre a very different discipline to TV or film? It is. Um, uh, for a start, it's it's extremely hard work. Um, depending on on what you're doing and how long the run is, um, I've, for example, I've I've done um, I did the original Amadeus that Peter Schaffer wrote at the National Theatre, and then it transferred to the West End in London, and I played in it for fifteen months. And I did, Colin McPherson's played The Weir on Broadway and played for nine months. And, I mean, it's not coal mining, but it's tough uh, because people are coming to see it every night who have paid a lot of money. And it's your job to give them as good a show uh, as the first night audience got. And you've got to do that eight times a week, week in, week out, and keep it fresh and keep it alive so that they um, have a a special um, experience, uh, which is what it's all about. Um, So that's the downside of it, in that it's, it's, it's hard and it's hard to keep yourself motivated and hard to keep yourself fresh, but you have to do it because that's your job. Um, on the other hand, there's something magical about it because each performance is slightly different to the other one. The the the, the sort of random factor is the audience itself. Um, sometimes they're they're in the mood to laugh and you surf along on that, uh, and other times they take something more seriously. Um, but each performance is unique. It's like a little handmade piece of embroidery that's given as a present every night Um, and there's a special interaction between you and the audience and by that I mean that there's nobody coming between you as an actor and their experience of the play whereas when you do film or television as an actor you are kind of at the mercy of the editor and the director uh, and all sorts of other forces because a lot of the time um, movies are made in the editing room and not so much uh, on the floor or on location. So once your part as an actor is over in the movie, you've absolutely no control over it whatsoever. Um, you might go and see it and find that you're completely cut out of it. Uh, or what you thought you were doing, there's a different emphasis depending on, on the view of the director and, and the editor. So in that sense, working in the theatre is purer um, from an acting point of view. Uh, and I love that. I, I, I love that excitement, that, you know, the fact that audience and cast meet at a preordained time in a preordained destination um, just for this one experience and and that's what the audience will take away and that's what we will experience as actors on the stage Um, and that's the magic of it but the older I get the sort of I, I mean I've just done uh, a run of uh, 100 performances in New York uh, in a play called Mother of the Maid with Glenn Close uh, about Joan of Arc uh, and her parents. And that was, um, it was exhilarating to do, but it was exhausting because it was a highly emotional play uh, and had the audience in floods of tears at the end of it because, like... It's not a happy ending. Uh, but to sustain that level of emotion every night was was hard. So you had to you had you have to look after yourself, make sure you don't get a cold and that you know that you're ready to do it and, and when you when you're in a play you, you your mind starts 
returning to it about three o'clock or three thirty in the afternoon. Um, you know, you have to head towards the theatre and get your head in the right space and and all of that. So there's a lot involved. It's thrilling, but it's the kind of thing that you can really only, at least I can really only do now, maybe once a year. Now, one of the shows that you did in London was broadcast globally as part of the National Theatre Live. Did that change how the show was performed? That's a very interesting question. Um, that's the only time that I uh, I did at National Theatre Live. Uh, it, it was Rufus Norris, who's the director of the National Theatre. It was his first show, um, uh, a version of Every Man, uh, which the poet laureate Caroline Duffy wrote uh, with uh, Chiwetel and um, playing Every Man, and I played Death. And it was kind of... It was electrifying when we played it on stage every night. It was kind of a bit like being at a rock concert because it was very funky music and all sorts of things. But when we came to do it, uh, you just have sort of one rehearsal for it. Uh, the people who do the NT Live come in, of course, and, and see it and work out their camera angles and everything. But what happens in reality on the day is that they half of the stalls in the Olivier Theatre are empty uh, for all the camera equipment and sort of uh, platforms for uh, cameras to be able to dolly along and, you know, get overhead shots and all of that. But there's still maybe 500 or 600 people come and see that uh, on the night. So the actor's dilemma is, are you playing to the camera or are you playing to the people who are sitting maybe 20 feet away? And, and I found that quite difficult because when you play to a camera, uh, particularly if they're in close-up, as I'm sure you know, I mean, it's, it's all in the eyes. And, and, uh, and if you're thinking in the right way and it shows in your eyes, then that says everything. Whereas if you're playing to an audience in the theatre, you've got to send it out there uh, that bit more. So I found that tricky. Um, but it, it, on the other hand, I'm a big fan of it because it brings the sort of best of world theatre to the world. Um, you know, people all over the world can go to a cinema and see kind of world-class actors uh, at the kind of top of their game. And, and that's exciting, I think. It certainly is, but it begs the question, do you think all theatre translates to film? Um, no, I don't. I mean, fil film is... Uh, film is its own intrinsic, beautiful, subtle art form, um, which the uh, I have to say the Americans are, are absolutely masters at. I mean, the wonderful screen actors in America for years and years, um, uh, and you know you 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 can't just statically film uh, a play and expect it to be as good as the film. I mean, the National Theatre Live is a compromise in that the people who are watching it for the most part, uh, although it is recorded because obviously they're, when it goes out, it might be four o'clock in the morning in, you know, I don't know, New Zealand somewhere, so people wouldn't see it live. But uh, when... Uh, so, but, so what they're seeing is they're, they're actually in a theatre seeing a play. They're not seeing the film. They're seeing a filmed version uh, of a major play. 
Uh, and that's the difference between uh, a, a film which is shot on location and is polished and honed and edited and has music added to it and all sorts of things uh, done to it before uh, the completed um, article is shown to the public. So would you do another National Theatre Live? Oh, yes. Of course I would. Uh, I'm due to go back to the National Theatre to do Brian Friel's translations uh, at the end of this year, which we did last year and it's been revived because it was such a hit. It's, It's a wonderful play. Now, whether that will be Slaters to be on the NT Live or not, I don't know. Those kind of decisions are are taken above my pay grade. Um, I, I guess it depends on, on how suitable the play is for it. Um, I mean, ideally, if I had my druthers, as they say, uh, I would prefer to be in the audience. Uh, I, you know, ideally, I would prefer to be in, in a theatre seeing a live play. But if that's not possible the next best thing is being able to see world-class drama on my local cinema screen. But there are compromises, obviously. Absolutely. And speaking of incredible things, you're a part of the hugely successful TV series Luther, which began almost 10 years ago now. When you filmed that very first series, did you ever think that it would still be on in 2019? (laughs) I had no idea. I, I had absolutely no idea whatsoever. Um, I didn't come into the first series until uh, I think it was possibly episode three or four and it was just a one-off my my character was um, uh, a sort of uh, a head of complaints department and he was investigating corruption in the police and he was very suspicious of Luther uh, played by Idris Elba because uh, Luther uh, you know, treads a very fine line uh, between uh, being a saint and a sinner as a cop, and that's part of the of the joy of of the series. So I was brought in to see if there was any evidence to um, to discipline or to fire him, and I, and I thought that was that, and it it was incredibly well written by the wonderful Neil Cross, uh, who uh, devised the series and has written every single episode since. Um, and and I thought that was that. I, I was hired to do one episode. And, and then I got an email from Neil Cross, who lives in New Zealand, uh, saying, uh, hello, I'm Neil Cross. And um, I wrote uh, Luther, and I, I really like what you're doing. And would you like to... Uh, to do some more. And I thought, you know, would I Buffalo? Of course I would love to do some more. Um, so then he started, then he wrote me in uh, to, to the series as, as a regular character. Um, so we did six. Uh, and I, I mean, it's a bit, I think it's a bit like, you know, people say it's very violent and it is, it's, it's violent and it's scary, really scary, but it's a bit, it's violent and it's scary in the way that grand opera is. I, I've always looked at it as, as a, a, a bit of grand opera for, for television drama. And, uh, of course, in the meantime, uh, Idris Elba, who, he, you know, he, he was quite well-known at the time, um, uh, certainly over here because of The Wire was a, a huge success for him. But his career took off by the time we had finished series one of Luther in a big way, and he was cracking it into the movies, and rightly so. Um, so the second series, he, he wasn't uh, 
sort of that available. I mean, he was he had a, an incredibly full diary. So Neil wrote, uh, I think, uh, two two hour stories for for series two, and then two two hour stories for series four. And then by that time, it was, was so busy, it was almost impossible to kind of do anything. So he wrote two one hour. Uh, and now we've just finished off and done series five uh, for one-hour episodes. But the and, and that's taken ten years. But the interesting thing about it is that Idris loves it, uh, Neil loves it, I love it. You know, all of the kind of regulars uh, love it, and kind of in a way because of its scarcity over the years, it's built up an enormous fan base of people who are desperately waiting to see the next lot of Luther. And sometimes, I, I don't know what it's like in America, but sometimes here there's a gap of maybe two years before the next uh, episodes go out. Uh, and it's sold, I, I think, in something like 142 countries. So it's all over the world. Um, and it's 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 the most exciting uh, job on television that I've certainly had uh, ever. It's uh, I look forward to it so much. And Neil writes for all of us now, so he, it, it, his great talent as a writer is that, from an actor's point of view, when you pick up a Neil Cross script, um, very little acting is required. You know, the, the words come off the page and sound as if they're coming out of your mouth for the first time. Um, and and that's just wonderful to do. And then for a long time, and I don't think I'm going to give you away any secrets because Idris has spoken about this as well. I mean, it, it, there's always been the uh, the intention that Luther would transfer to the big screen. And I think the um, the kind of gods are in alignment or the ducks are in a row or whatever phrase uh, you should use because uh, Idris is big enough now to, to carry a, a, a movie. Neil is, I know, writing it as we speak. And so hopefully it will start filming later this year. And will that serve as a conclusion to the series, do you think? I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know. I suppose it depends on how it goes in the cinema. Um, series 5 on television here has got wonderful viewing figures and great reviews and uh, so that should be hitting the screens on BBC America fairly soon I would imagine um, well I certainly yeah I hope so I, I, I hope so too and it's very scary I mean it's um, for people who haven't seen Luther I mean it was the beginning of episode uh, series 3 and my wife and I was were sitting at home um, uh, watching it as it went out this is three or four years ago uh, or more and you know when you're involved in it you, you obviously you're only filming the scenes you're in and uh, uh, and uh, I try not to see any of it when it's happening and, and then you go away and do other things and it, it might hit the screens until, I don't know nine months later and so we were sitting at home watching um, episode one of series three and there is a scene in it that is so frightening we almost fell off the sofa in shock um, and uh, and that's the um, I think that's the power of Luther is that a lot of people are afraid to watch it on their own it's certainly a, a dark and powerful show and you were also in a, a very powerful yet very funny film called The Death of Stalin 
What did you find interesting about that project? Well, that was written and directed by the magnificent Armando Iannucci um, and starring uh, various luminaries uh, like Michael Palin and Steve Buscemi and Jeffrey Tambor and Simon Russell Beale. I mean, it was an amazing company of, of actors um, that were all sort of hand-picked by Armando. Um, I, I don't know whether you know that the, the movie is based on a French um, comic, uh, a, a graphic uh, kind of novel, and uh, which is fantastic in itself. Uh, and Armando was asked uh, to turn it into a movie. And he was unavailable because he was doing Veep in America. And the French producers waited for him, which is amazing. For up to two years, they waited. And when he was finally free, uh, he started and he, he got a group of actors together who were uh, um, like Paul Whitehouse and Michael Palin, uh, for example, could be judged to be from the more comedic side uh, of the business, uh, although you know, both of them are wonderful actors as well. Simon Russell Beale is a classical actor who has you know, starred at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company for yonks. Uh, and then the Americans, you know, Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev, for example, uh, were another kind of voice. And so there was this kind of disparate group of actors, all from different kind of disciplines, brought together to play the Politburo. And the film is, I mean, one of the first things, we were all worried when we met um, about what we were going to do about Russian accents. Would, would we try and do our, our fake attempt at a Russian accent? And the very first thing Armando said was, you're all using your own accents. Uh, because he said Russia is a huge place, or was a huge place. And so people are from all over Russia, so they would speak in different ways. So he said, you just use your natural voice. So that, that lifted a huge burden from us. And it also took away that kind of fake feeling of people acting, uh, as it were, acting Russians. Uh, we were, rather than acting, we were trying to be the characters. And... The other wonderful thing that he did, I mean, the script is amazing. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a black, black, dark, dark comedy, uh, all set around the time of uh, Joseph Stalin's death, uh, when his um, ministers and his government are so petrified of saying the wrong thing or not laughing uh, at one of his jokes. And they could be shot at any minute. I mean, his reign of terror and fear was absolutely unbelievable. Um, so they're in fear of their lives uh, 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 until he is actually dead. And then as soon as he's dead, uh, they uh, fight like cats in a bag as to who will succeed uh, him as the leader uh, of, of, uh, of Russia, of the Soviet Union. And it's a... It's so funny. I mean, the characters are outrageous. Jeffrey Tambor is extraordinary. Steve Buscemi is wonderful. Uh, Michael Palin is hilarious. But uh, and, and there are funny things happening, and then suddenly in, in, in the back, almost uh, in the back of the shot, with no notice, a soldier will just put a gun to somebody's head and just kill them, bang, and they're dead. And it was as if the whole uh, frightening violence and... 
fear and torture uh, was just an everyday event. There was nothing special about it. There was nothing special about a dozen men being put up against the wall and shot because Stalin thought they were traitors or all the doctors being sent to, to Siberia because he, he thought that they were all involved in a plot to poison him. So eventually when he became ill, there weren't any competent doctors left in Moscow to treat him, which was the irony of the whole situation. But the, the wonderful thing about doing that film was that because Armando had such control over it, he got, which is very, very rare, he got two weeks rehearsal for us. So for two weeks, we all met every day in this rehearsal hall. And Armando and his assistant would sort of follow us around as we were kind of improvising the various scenes. And he would feed us little lines and we would say something and he would write them down or his assistant would and they would go away and polish them and feed them back to us the next day. And so, and, and we would go out and eat together and have drinks together and, and rehearse together. So by the time the camera rolled on the first day of shooting, we all knew each other kind of really quite well. And we loved each other really quite well. And we trusted each other really quite well. So that he, you know, the cameras weren't set up in a particular place. They were able to kind of follow us around and um, keep the whole thing fluid. Um, scenes would start, somebody would say something in the background and the camera would hone in on them and then it would wipe away and go to somebody else. So there's that wonderful kind of feeling of life about the movie. Uh, it's both terrifying and incredibly funny at the same time. You find yourself, uh, well, I found myself laughing hysterically and then kind of putting my hand over my mouth and going, oh my God. Um, so th that's one of the best pieces of uh, work that I've ever been involved in. Uh, and I had a friend, uh, 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 an actor who was in uh, Mother of the Maid uh, with me in New York recently, who, uh, who hadn't seen it. And I said, you really must see this because I said, it's, uh, it's such a black comedy and I'm sure it will appeal to you, uh, to your sense of humour. And so anyway, he got a DVD and he watched it and he was just absolutely blown away by it. And he said, something very interesting, and I think it's probably true. He said, I think this film is going to become a cult film over the years, and as time goes on, it will become a bit like Withnail and I or you know, one of those kind of classic uh, movies. And I hope he's right, because the standard of work um, in it is, is superb, and it's down to Armando and... Uh, you know, the cinematographer and the writers and, and the cast. But it's, 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 if you haven't seen it, go get it. I'm talking too much. No, not at all. It, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. It is an excellent film. And you mentioned that it was one of your favourite projects you've worked on. Do you have a favourite? Can you narrow it down? All the work you've ever done, has there been one that you loved more than the others? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of proudest of, of Luther and Death of Stalin, really. Um, I mean, I've, I've worked with some wonderful people over the years. I mean, I, I've been in, in, incredibly lucky. You know, I, I, I've worked with Robert Redford uh, and I've worked with Maggie Smith uh, and... Uh, and Glenn recently, Glenn Close. Uh, and so you, you sort of, you kind of pinch yourself every so often, kind of think, you know, how, how lucky am I to be working with these people who are at the top of their game? Uh, I mean, I really, <clears throat> I love seeing 
really high quality work. Um, uh, there's something absolutely exhilarating in it, and, and it's good for the soul. Um, but yeah, I would say if I had to pick two out of the hat, I'd, I'd say Luther and uh, and Death of Stalin. Fair enough. Now, before I let you go, is there anything career-wise you'd like to achieve or, or do that you haven't yet had the opportunity to? You know, there isn't really. Uh, I, I, I don't sort of sit at home craving um, a certain part or, you know, uh, breaking my heart because the world hasn't seen my King Lear yet or <laughs> anything like that. Uh, it, uh, I'm sort of, I'm kind of very happy to see what the world will give me. Uh, and I mean, what I'm happy doing is choosing my work, you know, that if I'm in in the lucky position of being able to, to say yes to the projects that I think are worthwhile and valuable and both are good for me to do and are good for an audience to see, then that's, then I'm happy. Um, and it's, you know, and as long as it goes on like that, I will... Uh, as Beckett says, I will pant on as long as I can remember the odd line and get on stage or in front of the camera. Well, I hope you continue to do that for many years to come because I have genuinely loved so much of your work. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. My great pleasure and thank you ever so much. That was my chat with the incredible Dermot Crowley. Now, we'll be back with some new exciting interviews very, very shortly. But in the interim, don't forget to check out some of our other online projects, including The Phoenix Files, starring BAFTA nominee Paul McGann. You can uh, stream that sci-fi audio drama on iTunes or Amazon or Spotify or Google Play. So we've made it very easy for you to grab a hold of that one. And as always, thanks to our incredible supporters, Palace Nova Cinemas, Mad Zombie Collectibles and ZQ Racing. Uh, All of their details are on the website. You can follow me on social media. I'm uh, on Instagram, Benjamin Mayer McKay, on Twitter, Benjamin MM underscore, and on Facebook, just uh, search Benjamin Mayer McKay and look for the blue check mark to make sure it's really me you're following. That is it for today's show. See you next time. <laughs>